Thanks for downloading show 79 of the C-Suite podcast that's being recorded at the CFA UK's FinTech Interactive Forum at the offices of Inmarsat in London. And the title of today's event, and therefore this episode, is Asset Management, Rise of the Machines. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and I'll be chatting to a number of the speakers from today's event, which we hope will provide a real overview of the topics and issues being discussed. And to kick things off, I'm joined by Mikey Shulman, Head of Machine Learning at Kensho. Uh, Mikey is about to run a breakout session on machine learning versus economics. So uh, thanks for joining us ahead of that. Before we talk about your session, though, perhaps you can give us a very quick overview on who Kensho are and what brings you to the event today. Great to be here. So Kensho is a five-year-old fintech company out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, the other Cambridge. And really, our, our mission has always been to make sense of the messy world of financial data. You know, there's so much data that impacts financial markets. Basically, the whole world impacts financial markets, and we want to make sense of it. And the only way you're going to do that is using machine learning and analytics. There's just too much to go through it by hands. So we have a little bit of an interesting background. Our company doesn't have, let's say, traditional or, or isn't based completely on traditional uh, venture capital. Our investors are a lot of big, big global banks like Goldman Sachs, Bank of America. And they really sort of helped incubate the company and really understand the, the space. Most recently, we were acquired last year by S&P Global, so we're, we're proud members of the S&P Global family. The mission hasn't really changed. You know, we're still making sense of loads of financially relevant data and, and you know, now actually just a little bit more focused. Excellent. And you've flown over uh, especially for today, haven't you? Yes, that's right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be escaping the minus 20 degree weather in Boston. Fantastic. Okay, let, let's talk about this session you're, you're running shortly. Can you give us a taster of what's going to be discussed? From talking to a lot of people at, let's say, tech companies and also talking to a lot of people in, in traditional financial services companies and big global banks, there are basically two ways that people like to approach problems. There's the way that I would call the machine learning way, which is let me brute force everything, let me just make the best predictions of my problem possible. And then there's the way that I would call the economics approach or the econometrician's approach, where all I want to do is understand my system, and I want to understand cause and effect, and I want to really make models that describe reality. And these things really seem at loggerheads. They seem like they don't really get along, and you have to do either one approach or the other. And from what I've seen in finance, we're really heavily biased toward using the econometrics approach, where money's on the line and we're in a heavily regulated industry. We really need that sort of explainability. And what I'm going to sort of try to convince people of is that this duality is, is sort of a false one. Most of the good problems lie somewhere in between these two approaches. And if most of the good problems are there, then all of the good solutions to these problems are there. And it's really about both sides sort of easing their constraints and learning to, to approach problems a little bit differently. From what I've seen, the, the mark of a good problem solver is someone who knows how to, how to walk that spectrum between machine learning and, and economics. And so that's what I'm going for. So have you got any examples, that typical problem examples that can help explain this? Yeah, absolutely. So, that, you know, they're, they're really quite a few. They're all over the spectrum. And a lot of them, at least in, in my experience, have to do with teaching computers to understand language or so-called natural language processing. So most recently, actually, we, we did one targeting automatic ingestion of data. So basically, you can think, I'm a company, I go and I buy a new data set, and now I need to merge it into my existing data. And this is usually a very manual process because there are no standards uh, on, on the way data are represented. And typically this will this can take years to integrate a new data set. But with some 
sort of machine learning techniques, but also borrowing parts from sort of the traditional econometrics approach, we were able to most recently take the time it takes to ingest a new data set from about a year to about a week. And that's, as a financial services company, that's huge for us. It lets us get data to the market much, much faster than our competitors. It lets us sort of eliminate roadblocks in getting data into our product. So we're, we're very excited about that. So based on all that, what's the key message that you're hoping the attendees of your session will take away with them today then? Yeah, I think the key message is to sort of uh, understand that there is not a, really a duality between machine learning and economics and really that if you, if you relax some of the constraints that you, that you maybe have ingrained in your mind, either if you're a pure machine learning person or if you're a pure econometrics person, you'll really have access to being able to solve a lot of new, really cool problems if, you know, that, that, that I'm sure are plaguing you. And one place to look is things that involve natural language. How up to speed is the industry in terms of the, the technology that you're talking about here with AI and machine learning? You know, I think things are certainly let's say, lagging behind other things. Let's say, you know, big tech companies, you know, Facebook and social media and, and Google for search. But lagging is, not, is, is almost a derogatory word, and I don't think about it like that. You know, there's, there's reason that you don't want to apply these, these same extremely advanced techniques to the world of finance. You know, money's on the line, regulations, you, you, you just can't afford to do it. So you have to be a little bit more clever in, in what problems you choose to solve with machine learning, but that doesn't mean you don't want to solve anything, and that doesn't mean the progress isn't getting made at an extremely rapid rate. It's just, it's in a slightly different area. In, in finance, we tend to be a little more uh, closed-handed with our cards. We don't want to tell everyone what we're doing like Google and Facebook might do, but it's still extremely exciting time for the industry. Excellent. So if listeners want to find out more information about this topic, where's the best place for them to, to go? They should come check out our website, www.kensho.com. We have a blog, we have some other materials up there, a lot of exciting stuff. Tremendous. Uh, Mikey Shulman, thanks for joining the show and uh, good luck with your session. Thanks very much. Joining me now is Vinay Jayaram, CEO and co-founder of Envisage, who has just hosted a discussion here at the uh, forum, looking at a new way of communicating with financial consumers. How did that session go, Vinay? Well, I thought it went really well, um, considering it was the session right before lunch. Always a nightmare. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And I made a commitment to the audience that I'd get them out so they could get a jump on the lunch queue, and I'm happy to say I stuck with it. There you go. Now, let's start with the advice engine that you uh, talked about in that, in that discussion. Now, Envisage has created this for financial service firms. What's driven the development of it, and how is it going to change the way we manage our financial future? So what we recognized was that there was this very significant engagement gap amongst consumers with respect to financial products and services. And whilst there were many slick digital journeys, they were invariably journeys that took the consumer on the last mile of a very long and very complicated journey. And these were what we call action journeys. Invariably, they were focused on consumers that were highly confident and had a high intent to purchase or to act. Sadly, the data shows that most people don't fit that brief. So we felt that there was a very good use case to create an engine that could power digital experiences, very different in nature from client to client and country to country, that could help bridge this engagement and comprehension gap for the end consumer, that could effectively add context to financial products and put them in the context of the life, the future, and the outcomes that most people understand and can embrace. And it's all types of financial products. Indeed. What's unique about it is that it actually cuts across the three core families. So saving and investing, protecting and insurance, as well as borrowing. That's something that's quite different about it. 
here's the key question then. How, how does it all work? So to try to boil it down into a very simple description, uh, which is often hard to do, what we try to do is we use very high quality data that often comes to us from our clients to simulate the future of an individual or a household. Now that future is by nature uncertain. And there are a number of different sources of that uncertainty. It could be the ups and downs of the market. It could be a member of the family falling ill or potentially even dying before their age. And what we do is we use available data to simulate all of these with their realistic chances of happening to the household. And at the end of that, we boil the output into three questions that we believe most people have on their minds. The first is, will we be able to do the things we care about in our future? The second is, if not, why not? And the third, which is perhaps the most useful, is what can we do about it? Of all the choices and trade-offs that we have, both financial and non-financial, what has the biggest impact? Talking about scenarios there, I'm going to throw one at you here, you know, because we're, we are recording this four weeks away from potentially when the UK could be leaving the EU. We still don't know, well, A, if that's going to happen or if it does you know, happen, if there will be a deal of some form or, or not at all. How, how, does, how, how does your engine manage something like that then, where, to be honest, the people even organising that don't even know what's going on at the moment? So. And so that's the beauty of a probabilistic or a stochastic approach, is you don't need to worry about these things. The capital markets assumptions that are provided to us by our client are already forward-looking assumptions. And these are the assumptions that the large bank or the large insurance company that we might be working with are using to run their business on a, on a much larger basis. And obviously, a lot of thought has gone into those assumptions to make sure that various probabilities of various different types of Brexit have been fed into those assumptions. So if we're using that, we're effectively putting at the disposal of the lay individual a degree of sophistication and complexity that A, they can't understand but don't need to understand and b they simply had no access to before it's the same sophistication that the large institutions are using to manage their own balance sheets and their own capital adequacy and solvency and are you at a position where you can share any results at the moment yes we are we have a number of clients that we're working with that range from you know fairly early stage startups all the way to very large incumbents we have relatively few clients that we're able to talk about one that we can is money farm which is one of the larger robo-advisors in the UK and a subsidiary of the insurance company Allianz. And in the first phase of work with them, which happened over the latter part of last year into early this year, they pointed it at their existing customers as well as existing would-be customers that hadn't quite made the conversion leap, had registered but hadn't funded the account. And the results were really quite exciting. So what they found was that existing customers found this offer to be extremely helpful and a different way of thinking about their futures that exposed to them many more needs and, and potential pathways they could pursue, giving more opportunities for Money Farm to satisfy into those. And on the other hand, there would be fence-sitting customers, at least a, a section of those felt uh, the confidence to, to progress with the journey. So from their perspective, they viewed this as, as hitting all the right buttons. Uh, in a world where the top part of the market of the confident high intent, what I call the Hargreaves Lansdowne type customers, are very saturated in terms of offers, our clients are now able to go one level down and start serving a less confident, um, a less decisive type of customer. Okay. And, and across this, the, the whole forum today, what's the key thing that you're hoping people are going to take away? 
Well, look, I think there are a lot of different modules that are that are available here, but if there's one thing I hope the incumbents will take away, it's that it's the velocity of change, it's the pace of change. Whilst we're working with a number of incumbents, the cycles that it takes for these incumbents to make decisions and to implement those decisions often lasts two to three years. And in two to three years, a more nimble competitor would have run probably 20 to 30 iterations and would have landed a much better result. Although our incumbent clients continue to give us tired explanations of why it is that way, fundamentally it's incumbent on, no pun intended, on the chief executives to really understand why their procurement purposes, or why their procurement processes are not fit for purpose, why their legal and regulatory teams don't move fast enough, why their data and info security teams aren't able to, to make decisions. What is it about them that makes them so wary of taking risk in a marketplace where if they don't take some degree of risk, they're just going to have their customers trade with their competitors? And so just going back to uh, your presentation that you gave here today, if listeners um, want to find out more information about that, where's the best place to go? The easiest is our website, envisage.me, spelt with a Z, not an S, E-N-V-I-Z-A-G-E dot me. And you'll find a contact us link on our website. Tremendous, Vinay. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can now go off and have your lunch now. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. Cheers. Next to chat to us is Julie Chakraverti, CEO and founder of a new workplace advice platform called Rungway. Julie's presenting the final plenary session this afternoon on the topic, your newest team member, how AI will grow your career. Julie, your talk is about the need to approach our careers in a very different way. Why do you think this is the case? Well, if you are entering the workforce today, you would need to plan for a 70-year career. Not working until the age of 70, like our parents did, but for 70 years. That's quite daunting, isn't it? Absolutely. And if you think about it, Russ, in your 30s and 40s even, we'd have longer working lives ahead of us than we've even lived. So we need to plan differently for those ultra-long kind of strategies. And interestingly, the World Economic Forum estimates that the percentage of jobs today's children will do that haven't even been invented yet will be 65%. So the brand new is becoming the new normal at work. Plus, people are only averaging five or four to five years now in a job. You know, we're less patient. Millennials want to see tangible results really quickly on what they consider their career investment. And I think they've got a whole different vocabulary around reward. They prioritize meaning impact and experience. So I don't think we'll have just one career anymore, but maybe 10 to 15 careerlets. And they might be at different firms, they might be roles within the same firm. But I guess as someone who's been an executive, a non-executive and a founder, I can tell you that you'll need a totally different preparation and mindset. That's a new word I've not heard before, careerlets. I like that. How do you see the opportunity then to use technology better in, in, in our own careers? Well, if you think about how we you know, you love new technology in our lives, I mean, I hate traffic jams. I love the Waze app. You know, I key in where I need to be and the crowd tells me how to get there. Um, I love baking. So even if I was buying a spatula, I would probably research it on Amazon, do some sort of forensic deep dive into people's reviews. But then think about the seismic changes in your career paths. You know, the way we use technology in the workplace is kind of archaic. If you think about those memorable workplace moments, like you get passed over for, for a promotion, what do we do? We call our mum. 50% um, wonderful, 50% irrelevant. So I think we do need to think about how AI and new technologies can solve day-to-day -day 
career and work challenges. So tell us a little bit about um, Wrongway then. You've launched the business a, a few years ago. What, what was the reason behind it and what have you learned? And, and in fact, has anything surprised you in, in the time as well? Sure. I mean, if you think about it, one of the biggest untapped areas of, of know-how is all of your colleagues, especially the ones you don't know yet or you're a little bit afraid to approach. I think, Russ, that there are barriers that really stop advice flowing in companies. The first thing is time. You know, who's got time for more meetings? How do we know who to go to when we need advice? And some of us lack confidence, especially if you look different or sound different. It's not always easy to speak up. In fact, Runway Research found that half of us have something that we want to tell our manager, but we don't feel we can. So I built Runway. People post questions with the option of anonymity, and then they're matched with colleagues to help. And companies see really interesting dynamics, especially around gender. For example, women, when they make up a third of your workforce, will ask two-thirds of Runway questions. And the things that they ask really reveals important unmet needs. So companies have to embrace these new ways of thinking and helping and actually create an environment where people can genuinely speak out. So coming back to the title of your talk this afternoon, you use the metaphor of AI as your newest colleague. What advice would you give to CFA members, but actually anyone really listening to this podcast working in an industry where AI is now being introduced, what, what advice would you give to build the best relationship with this new, as you call it, you know, your new colleague? Well, I think firstly, the nature of networks and teams is going to change beyond recognition on the back of AI. And we're going to need to learn from each other in ways that we haven't had to before. So AI will be a really important partner. But think about our human skills of critical thinking, judgment, emotional intelligence, and frankly, just managing people. We need to use those skills and challenge the outputs of some of these models, Ross, in the same way you wouldn't follow a colleague blindly. We've got to inspect the outcomes of what AI is, is telling us. We've got to enlist more diverse people to inspect those models, and we've got to guard against bias. Some of these challenges are not a technical problem for quants. They are a business and leadership issue. We've got to hold ourselves accountable to implement and innovate AI properly. And I would say especially to CFAs, they should be very well prepared in asking questions, in challenging, suggesting and inspiring. So CAI is a new colleague that needs a bit of feedback and guidance. Blind reliance on big data is not the answer. We've got to understand the personal and the individual. Yes, AI will change the world of work forever, but it's a new colleague which can become a good friend in how we ask questions, and support each other to learn, challenge and thrive. Excellent. If listeners want to find out more about this topic, um, or indeed about Rungway, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Nice and easy. Just go to Rungway, R-U-N-G-W-A-Y dot com. Fantastic. Julie uh, Chakraverti, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with your session. And we are back after this quick break. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com Follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do.
Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, here at the CFA UK's FinTech Interactive Forum. And next to join us is another of our three plenary uh, session speakers, Yasin Rosowski, who is head of AI research at Arabesque, a company founded in 2013 that, according to their uh, website at least, has pioneered a new approach to asset management by integrating ESG, i.e. environmental, social and governance, with big data and quantitative investment strategies. Uh, so before we hear about your talk on launching an AI fund. Let's just get a bit of background to Arabesque. Arabesque started at Barclays actually in 2010 and it was a management buyout in 2013 where Omar was tasked to look at what was going to be the next generation, Omar being CEO of Arabesque and founder, what it will be the next generation in asset management and he identified two themes, sustainability data and the use of non-financial data in investment management processes. And the other uh, key theme is quantitative investing, the use of machine learning and AI within the investment management decision-making process. And Arabesque is built on two key pillars. One is the sustainability. For that, we have Arabesque S-Ray, one of the world's leading providers of sustainability data on companies. It looks at over 7,000 companies on a daily basis and gives a score between 0 and 100 on, their, on many different sustainability metrics. We use that in the asset management business of Arabesque um, to first understand the sustainability of companies and build investable universes based on these sustainability metrics. And then from there, once we've eliminated or removed and identified those poor performing companies on the sustainability issues, we then apply quantitative methods. So... uh as I said before, your, your talk was about this new fund that you're launching, which is based on AI technology. Can you explain how that's been developed? Yeah, so we've been working on this AI engine for the last uh, several years, actually. And the purpose of this engine is to come up with investment recommendations using what you technically we uh, refer to as massively distributed large-scale computational graphs. What this essentially means... I was going to say, what's that in English then? Yeah, so what, what this essentially means, if you imagine a network, it's a massive network of many different data sources connected to many different machine learning algorithms, economic models, mathematical models, um, all with the purpose of understanding the underlying drivers within the financial markets and then could be coming up with, coming up with investment recommendations for a, a given stock on a specific day, usually a probabilistic-weighted investment uh, decision. Uh, recommendation. And, and what's the reasoning then for developing it, you know, in terms of going purely AI? We're seeing in, we've seen a couple of developments in AI in the recent years, which we didn't have before. Uh, one is that the increasing amounts of data that we can access, can actually process. And the, the reason why we can process now is the other key driver being the um, computational performance and technology of these, uh, of, of the underlying technology is able to be able to process this big data. Um, further, that is the advancements in recent years in artificial intelligence research. This principally is narrow AI, specifically focused on machine learning algorithms, either computational statistical machine learning algorithms or some kind of multi-layered weighting systems like uh, uh, neural nets, etc. These have been around for a long time, but we've never had the kind of combination of technology, data, and now uh, advancements in these underlying algorithms. Right. And, and what about in terms of future trends then? Do you, do you see the whole market shifting to AI-driven funds? 
Yes. Anything except for maybe illiquid, bespoke kind of investment decisions or products. But anything on the liquid side, you're going to be seeing over the next five, ten years, everything moving to these uh, artificial intelligence-based decision-making. And you'll be seeing this, you already see it at this conference, for example, not just on the investment decision-making, but on the holistic side or on a company-wide side. A lot of way that people have used to being able to kind of uh, do their work, process and act and make informed decisions and now you're seeing a lot of artificial intelligence and just technology in itself and automation it doesn't necessarily have to be artificial intelligence it's the automation and use of the uh, uh, good use of technology to be able to make much more kind of streamlined decision making and more informed decisions by bringing all different data from different parts of the company uh, to make more informed decisions and there's nothing where this uh, is more appropriate than also in the investment management side of things. And so what about your own development then in terms of what, what you guys are doing? What, what's the plans for the next couple of years? Yeah, this is where the most exciting stuff has happened. We, we see ourselves, what we've built is amazing and we could stop right there. And we've got this whole vision of where we want to take this AI engine over the next two, five year kind of roadmap. We have over 50 R&D projects in the pipeline covering many different kind of areas, just on the machine learning from anything from signal processing, uh, natural language processing, many different kind of uh, projects to kind of add to this network. If you think about it, what we're developing is like a brain. Uh, we have the first version of this brain and this massive network. Researchers come in and our team and they just constantly add. So it's constantly evolving. So we built the system from the ground up to be abstract enough that it allows and kind of encourages a uh, natural evolution of the system by just constantly adding to the network, giving it more data sources or more different learning algorithms or more economic models, etc. like that. What we're seeing at the moment, you know, everyone at the moment is very much on the narrow AI and we're, we're in that space as well. We're focusing on a, on a very constrained problem, very specific question. The artificial intelligence system can only do really one thing. But general artificial intelligence is the goal that we have. I mean, it's something that maybe is 20 years down the pipeline before we actually see something which is genuinely general artificial intelligence. But that's the direction we're heading as, as, as researchers. And we're a very research-focused team. So we've got this kind of all these architectural kind of projects of how we get towards general and approach general artificial intelligence, really exciting stuff. And, you know, like I said, very research focused. We actually, you'll start seeing publications from us as well. So that would be excellent. We want to be leaders and respected, not just in the AI uh, community in the finance space, but in the general space eventually as well. Fantastic. So if, if listeners want to find out more information about that and your, and your talk and all the, all the other things we've covered, where's the best place to go? The best place to go is to go on our website. Um, check us out there. Check out the team. Uh, always feel free to contact anyone in the team, including myself. If you don't have my email, for example, just go on LinkedIn, just add me. And the, and the website address? www.arabest.com. That's simple enough. Uh, Yasin Rosalski, uh, thanks so much for joining us and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. So joining us now is Claire Flynn-Levy, the founder and CEO of Accenture Analytics. Claire has just finished a breakout session here on the topic of using technology to prove and improve investment skills. So welcome to the show, Claire. Before we talk about the session, I thought maybe if you can just give us a quick overview of who Accenture Analytics are and what brings you here today. Sure. Well, Accenture Analytics um, does behavioral analytics for fund managers aimed at helping a human make a measurably better investment decision. Um, and of course, for fund managers, making good investment decisions is their entire job. <laughs> so therefore, um, what we do is use machine learning um, 
to analyze all of their ha their historical decisions and identify behavioral patterns um, that in some cases are very good and, and evidence of strong skill and in other cases are destructive and you know are uh, things that they would probably fix if they knew about them. And we basically act as a digital mirror to a fund manager and then use technology to help a fund manager mitigate these biases that, that he or she is showing. And, and as, as I mentioned just now, the, the, the topic uh, that you were talking on was uh, using technology to prove and improve investment skill. Could, could you give us a quick overview of, of what was discussed? Sure. Well, uh, you know, today we're here talking about AI and, and that can be that can mean a lot of things. People toss that term around. So I started by talking about the difference between augmented intelligence, uh, which is what, what we do at Essentia, which is uh, computers helping humans do a better job of being humans, um, as opposed to autonomous intelligence, where the computer makes all the decisions. The computer does basically does the job for the human and frees the human up to do something else. The investment management industry is very interested in this in this topic, but not very sure how to apply it in day-to-day -day life. And so what I talked about was our application of augmented intelligence, um, which really goes back to the first principles of, of uh, you know, any, any fund manager. An understanding of what is it that I am doing that is working <laughs> and what is it that I am doing that is not working and in what circumstances, you know, so... Uh, that's a complicated question to answer, but um, AI makes it possible. And one of the slides that you, you um, showed there, it, it said that asset management is ripe for AI. Why do you think that is then? Well, so PwC did a study a couple of years ago, and that's what the, the slide was from. It compares a bunch of different industries and the extent to which they rely on human judgment versus machine algorithms. And asset management was far and away the most reliant on human judgment which, um, you know, if you've read any behavioral finance literature or, you know, been made aware of it, then you, you'll know that humans are biased, particularly when it comes to making financial decisions. And professional investors are no exception. If they're human, then they have biases. So you've got this mix of an industry that is, is massively reliant on humans for judgment calls and biased humans and so there's there's a an opportunity there for ai to help fix that and and one of the uh, the key bits you were talking about was this this whole area of behavioral patterns i was just wondering if you for the benefit of the listeners that, that, that weren't in that session if you can just expand on on that a bit because that was quite interesting yeah well i mean what we do is is analyze the data of every trade that that a given investor has ever made and what you find is as you, as you would if you analyzed every golf swing that a golfer has ever made or every stroke of a tennis racket or, you know, whatever, um, there are patterns to how we do these things. Every, every human has patterns. And sometimes those patterns are profitable and they would be something you'd want to brag about. And sometimes they are not. And, and they are, you know, there's some very common uh, value destructive patterns that we see, like holding on to losers for too long something that's well documented in, in behavioral finance. Everybody knows that they have a tendency to do it, but they haven't actually seen themselves in the mirror doing it. And even if they have, they then don't necessarily have the wherewithal to stop themselves from doing it the next time. Um, so what we do is 
identify the, the pattern in the first place and the circumstances in which it's most likely to occur. And then when we see that pattern arising again, we ping the, the fund manager what we call a nudge, but basically just an email saying, heads up, here are some names in your portfolio where that pattern is starting to show up again. Not telling you what to do. However, you might want to answer these three questions that you told us you wanted to be asked in these circumstances. And can you share some of uh, some examples of results that you've seen from doing that? I mean, on average, we have uncovered for our clients over 90 basis points of alpha that they're giving up to either holding on to losers too long or not uh, increasing position sizes when a historical pattern is shown that actually that's their buying opportunity. Um, so it's worth quite a lot. And, and what we found is that when people do engage in this sort of feedback loop where the machine is, is just teeing up something for them to look at, those who do do it do end up seeing their, in this case, exit timing behavior dramatically improve, whereby they might still be holding on to a loser longer than in retrospect they should have, but they're much more likely to cut that loser and see the price of it continue to go down than to be catching the bottom, which is historically what they've done. Excellent. I'm sure there's loads we could talk about on this, um, but I understand you've got information available on, on, on the blog, on the website? Or? We have a bunch of uh, free white papers on www.essentia-analytics, so that's like essential without the L-analytics.com. Um, and we write a blog post um, that is focused on applied behavioral finance and, and uh, you know, continuous improvement and performance. Fantastic. Claire Flynn uh, Levy, thanks so much for joining us. So I'm now joined by Tim Grant, founder and CEO of Drum G Technologies. Uh, Tim's about to run a session here at the conference um, on the topic Making Blockchain Real, Charting a Course to Generating Business Value in Asset Management. Um, welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you, Russell. Do you want to give us an overview of, of what your session's going to be about? Yeah, that title's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, uh, look, I think the bottom line, um, like a lot of the emerging technologies in the space, um, AI, cloud, etc., blockchain suffers a little bit from a hype cycle that gets people very excited about it and and often it's not able to deliver and then people kind of get a little bit disillusioned with it and so having been in this blockchain space for in financial services for four years now which makes me a, a dinosaur relative to the others um, it's actually you know in a lot of experience in working with financial services and, and regulators uh, and central banks around the world for the last couple of years um, you kind of have zeroed in on where, how can we get things into real production, i.e. how could an asset manager or a custodian or a prime broker or a fund administrator, all the big players in the sort of asset management business, how can they genuinely jump on and, 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 and get generate business value? And what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of talk about the oranges of the blockchain and then really talk about the relevance in, in language that I think everybody will understand in, in financial services parlance why it matters uh, and then quickly talk about real use cases quickly talk about you know very detailed where are they going to see value and and how long is this going to take and then maybe give a give a little bit of a vision of the future of, of where we might be in a few years time well on that can you give us some examples now some a quick overview of maybe a couple of examples where it's being used at the moment yeah russell i think so w i think the one that i'm will focus on mainly today um is around uh, collapsing the, the really significant reconciliation burden that we see in the financial services industry and particularly in the asset management industry. So as, as, a, as a, to be very specific, 
you know, big hedge funds, big asset managers have multiple service providers in the in the form of custodians and fund administrators and, and prime brokers, as examples, and auditors as well. And right now, they they connect bilaterally. So they, there's lots of these slow, asynchronous, uh, expensive, difficult to maintain connections uh, that send data, and then they need to be reconciled. Then we need to check. Do I know that I'm holding the same piece of information that you are? And that's really just born out of how the industry grew over the last 20, 30 years. It's, it's just how it's been done. I think now we're realizing with, with things like blockchain and, and actually we're going to be running everything in the cloud, you can just really collapse that burden. Instead of posting the information to multiple providers, why don't you post it once? Why don't you post that one piece of data that you need people to know, post it once, and then give them access to that. But really, you've got to have it secure. Uh, you've got to have it validated. You've got to have an audit trail. And that's what blockchain gives us. It gives us that construct to allow us to, to really collapse that burden. And, and the outcome, if we sort of jump to what happens when we've got everybody on a network like this, is they just know much, much sooner where everything is and what's going on in their world. And that's a real benefit both in terms of efficiency, you know, cutting costs and just not spending time reconciling, but also deployment of capital. The lifeblood of the asset management industry is investing. Um, and if they have a better handle on their investment and capital position, then they can have a better handle on how to invest. So it's a, it's a very exciting kind of prospect, but you've got to start with something yeah, sort of bite size. And, and that's what we're doing. And, and what about in terms of future implications? Then you thought you, you said you're going to touch on that in, in, the, in the session yeah, it's, it's interesting when you think about bringing a, 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 an ecosystem of players like this, and this, you know, we're talking thousands of hedge funds and fund managers, and etc. When you've got them all on a network like this, you can actually do some really interesting things, but that's a journey. You know, day one, we'll start with a few players. We've got some really big players, which is fortunate for us, big you know, name brands who are working with us. But if we fast forward and we've kind of brought more players to the table they're all sharing this data in this way we get to some really uh sort of meaningful outcomes like the idea i'm going to introduce a, a notion here of a distributed investment book of records so a held notion of the entire state of the asset management industry that regulators have access to and and that is just secure so nobody's information is getting stolen nobody's information is leaked um but it does give an extraordinary capability to manage the whole industry in a more efficient way. That's where we want to go. That's, that's five to 10 years away. We're talking AI, we've talked machine learning, you're now here you know, discussing blockchain. Can it be quite daunting for some people in the industry? I, th I think it is. I think you're absolutely right. I think everybody's a little, um, maybe there's a sort of emerging technology fatigue Oh, not another AI fund or not another blockchain idea. And I think that's why we've kind of got to cut through the hype um, and really focus on practical realities. If, In a way, if you're in the asset management industry, the demand should be, if I can do something in the time horizon that's not five years, you know, tell me I can generate value within a year, then then you should engage in that. But if it's longer than that, probably not. And I think the problem is until now, there haven't been many that could do it within that year. Now I think we're finally getting to a point, certainly in blockchain, where we, we've got a level of maturity that that's becoming a reality. So it's 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 not it shouldn't be a wait and see story. Now it should be engage with those projects that that you can see a timeline that really delivers value on a short period of time.
Tim, if, if uh, people want to find out more information about this, where, where's the best place for them to go? Our website, drumg.com. We will be updating that pretty regularly and, and yeah, look forward to hearing from everyone out there. Tremendous. Uh, Tim Grant, thanks for joining the show. Thank you, Russell. Okay, well, our final guest of the day is the third of our plenary uh, speakers. So welcome to the show, Jeff Cates, CEO of the HTF Group. Jeff spoke this morning about the key AI technology and business trends in financial services in 2019. Perhaps we can start just with an, an, an outline of the areas of usage you were focusing on in your talk and maybe a few typical examples of AI applications. Sure. So the areas of usage the talk covered uh, included usage in asset management, insurance, retail banking and corporate and wholesale banking. Um, and it focused more on the real-world use cases rather than where people were thinking about using it or where they were doing proof of concepts. So some of the more interesting ones, including uh, real-time credit, uh, credit card fraud detection from Revolut, which enabled you to actually control whether a transaction was real or not. Um, so if, uh, they, if it was a suspicious transaction, that would, that would be stopped, and then you could actually then release it on your app. A couple of nice AML cases from HSBC and Cathay Bank. Very good sentiment analysis from Deloitte that actually read the, the tones in your voice and tried to find out what the customer was really thinking rather than what you were perhaps hearing. Some air in the predictive analytics from our um, ING. Model analytics from a company called Yields.io that really dramatically cut the cost of doing model validation and also cut down the time from months to weeks. And also one of the very first AI examples, which was commercial credit contract analysis from JP Morgan, that they're able to analyze them and save up to 360,000 hours per year. Were these a surprise, some of these examples to, to people in the room? Is, is it stuff that people are seeing on a regular basis or are these new technologies now that you're making the audience aware of? Well, I think it's uh, not new technologies, but it's new actual applications of them. So I think a lot of these were ones that people wouldn't have seen before. The only one that's really been widely publicized is the, uh, the coin, the commercial credit one from JP Morgan. The title of today's forum includes the line, Rise of the Machines. Given the number of examples you shared in your talk, and obviously you've given us a, a long list just now as well, how much of a threat is AI to jobs in the investment profession, would you say? Well, what we've, what we've seen, there's been some projected numbers out there where there's going to be a lot of jobs created in uh, technology and data, but a lot of jobs lost in the number of different areas, asset management, sales and trading. But what I think you'll find is that it'll only be the repetitive jobs or, uh, that will be lost and other jobs will be created. And I know you're, you're keen to show where AI is actually being used now rather than the potential for the future. What's the main message you want attendees here today and, and listeners obviously to this podcast to take away with them? Well, I think you'll find that AI has been looked at a lot in the past. Um, there's been a lot of using AI in the labs, a lot of using AI for proof of concept. But now it's really coming of its own. There are actual a lot of uh, implementations of AI out there. And one of the questions asked uh, during the presentation, well, why now? And one of the reasons why now is the availability of the computing power. There's computing power becoming available, so you can actually do a lot of this AR of data sets that does require a tremendous amount of computing power, and that computing power is available today. In fact, people like Google are creating custom AI chips that have tremendous processing capability. Excellent. If someone wants to find out more about all this topic, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, well, the best thing is to look at our website, which is www.htfcorporate.com, 
or I'm quite happy for somebody just to drop me an email at jeff.cates at hdf.corporate.com. I can give them a copy of the presentation. Uh, I can also answer any individual questions on some of the use cases that we raised today. That's great. Uh, Jeff Cates, thanks so much for joining the show. And in fact, that wraps up this podcast from this uh, CFA UK forum. So thanks again to all my guests who took the time to chat to us today and to the team at CFA UK for inviting us back to interview their speakers. Uh, Don't forget, if you want to find out more information about CFA UK or contact them, then the web address is simply cfauk.org. We'd love to hear any comments you may have on this episode. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our LinkedIn or Facebook pages and our Twitter and Instagram feeds, which are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com. You'll also find there all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads via the likes of iTunes, Spotify, and in fact, all podcast platforms. Um, just search for the C-Suite Podcast on your favorite podcast app. And as we always ask, if you subscribe on iTunes and have enjoyed the show, then please do give us a positive rating and review as that will help us climb the business podcast charts. Uh, finally, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well, or you can reach me via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.